You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. That's where we will be this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And if you don't own a Bible, we have some Bibles over there at the back table that we would love for you to take as a gift. Feel free to take one home and have a copy of God's Word in your hands. And if you're using one of those Bibles, the scripture passage is on page 977. We are continuing our series, Foundations of Faith from Death to Life in the book of Ephesians. And as Pastor Jeremy shared when we started this series, we wanted to, to uh, go through a book of the Bible that will lay a foundation of faith for us as a church. This is why we chose the book of Ephesians. It is one of the most succinct explanations of what we are meant to understand about our faith in Jesus, who we are, and how we apply that to our lives. Today's passage comes right before the, the big therefore in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 which marks the the second half of the book. But before we get to the second half of Ephesians, we want to be comforted by the good news that the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and that we can pray today. This comfort is not Paul's way of, of giving a simple pat on the back or a consoling remark, but rather it is a comfort that comes from the love of God in action into the lives of these Christians. So let's learn more about this good news of great comfort in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Let's stand as we read God's word. Please follow along as I read. The scriptures say this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. We thank you for the gift it is to know you, Jesus, as our comforter for every trouble. Jesus, you are worthy of our knees being bowed in utter dependence on you. Because we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. So as we meditate on this passage, I ask you for your help. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, author J.R.R. Tolkien chronicles the history of the fictional kingdom of Gondor. Gondor is described by Tolkien as the greatest and longest lasting realm in all of Middle-earth. Rising from the ashes of an exiled people group, Gondor would survive war, plague, and turmoil for over 3,000 years. 
Key to the Gondorian survival was the role of the steward. Stewards were leaders who deeply cared for the well-being of the people when Gondor had no king. As their name suggests, they stewarded the people's collective identity and the ideals they held. The best stewards were the ones who comforted the people with encouragement, with truths of who they were and what they were called to do. For Gondor's greatest enemy was always on the horizon, training its flaming eye on the people, always attempting to sow seeds of lies in their minds and that lead to doubts in the troubled hearts. When the enemy sought to undermine Gondor's efforts for goodness, it was the steward who was supposed to comfort the people with where good news could be found, finally witnessing the return of their king, who would be with them, love them, and empower them to defeat their enemies once and for all. The fantasy story of Gondor runs parallel with our real story in the book of Ephesians. Here we've seen the Apostle Paul, a steward of the gospel message, deeply care for these Ephesian Christians. While Paul is already encouraged by their faith, he prays to God on their behalf that who they are in Christ and what they are called to be in Christ would be their greatest comfort while living against the eyes of the world, the flesh, and the enemy that are trained on them. In River City Church, this is our story today. We want to be strengthened by Christ's presence in us so that we know his love that fills us and praise him as our king forever. What a comfort this good news brings. And this is not a comfort where we can then ease back and, and feel comfortable and passive to the troubles around us because God's love is in action, giving us comfort and empowering us to comfort others in our war against sin. So like Paul, we pray that our comfort in Christ empowers us to comfort others. That's our primary message this morning. Our comfort in Christ empowers us to comfort others because it is in Christ where we find his strength, his presence, his knowledge, his fullness, and his love all wrapped up in him and in you if Christ is in you. So what are we comforting troubled souls with? the good news of Jesus Christ seen in three truths that will serve as our outline today. These three truths from our passage that comfort our souls are one, we are strengthened by Jesus dwelling in us so that two, we can know the love of Jesus in us and three, we can praise the work of Jesus in us. These three truths in turn empower us to be comforters in Christ to others. So we're strengthened by Jesus dwelling in us. Paul's response for this reason he is praying as he wants to see these things ever more true for the Ephesians. And the first thing Paul wants them to be in verse 16 is strengthened. Paul prays that God will impart his strength to these Christians and touch their hearts with a greater awareness of his love for them. Paul is also keenly aware that the power of the power available through the Holy Spirit in his own life. So he seeks the Spirit's pouring out of this love onto the Ephesians. And this is the kind of strength that is available for us today because of the riches of God's glory and the Holy Spirit's power in our inner being. We are recipients of God's strength. But how is this comforting to us? Well, it's comforting because God's love is always sustained by his infinite power. And God's power assures us that everything that he has planned for us will come to its fullness or completion. 
There is nothing that can deter God from completing what he has planned. There is no form of sin or suffering, whether it be a a natural disaster, a spread of disease or desertion of a friend that can prevent God from fulfilling his purposes in our lives. River City Church, I hope you see God is not distant or apathetic from your sufferings. He is literally dwelling inside your hearts, strengthening us out of his glorious wealth to comfort our troubled hearts. Out of God's strength, we can comfort those who are shocked that their levy did not hold back the river water flooding into their homes. We can comfort those helpless by the spread of their disease that was thought to be cured by medication. And we can comfort those feeling betrayed by a friend who was thought to be loyal to the end. We are not coldly correcting people or, or p- for putting their faith in things that let them down because we ourselves know what it's like to do the same and feel powerless over an unfolding crisis. We also know what it's like to be comforted, not by a self-help pep talk, but by strengthening our identity in Christ every time we remind one another of the good news. We are comforters in Christ, gently and lovingly pointing our neighbors to the immeasurable power and love that dwells in us and can dwell in them too. And we see in our text, Paul prays for them to be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Why would Paul pray for Christ to live in their hearts if they're already Christians? Well, it's because Paul is thinking of the entire journey of the Christian's growth and maturity and faith. He indicates that the means of Christ's dwelling in their hearts is through putting their faith into action. This can be reminding one another of who we were before Jesus saved us and who we are now because of the cross. And during this series, we've even asked the question, who would we be apart from Jesus? Well, the Ephesians know exactly who they would be. Prior to coming to know Christ, the hearts of the Ephesians were darkened, hard, and they were alienated from God, as we see later in chapter 4. The same is true of us, if Christ does not dwell in us. And if we're being honest with ourselves, there are times when it feels like Christ does not dwell in us. Our faith wanes, and we feel alone, and try to outfit the dwelling space of our souls with something or someone other than God to fill that void of loneliness. It's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that the things and relationships in this world have what it takes to be perfectly present with us forever. When I was eight years old, my family moved into a new house. And I remember walking down to the basement for the first time and coming upon what I thought was a large wall cabinet. I opened both cabinet doors and and peered inside and quickly realized this was not a cabinet at all. It was a crawl space. And for an eight-year-old, this crawl space was huge. It was at least 15 feet deep, 10 feet wide, and and three feet tall, with all four walls made of concrete. I felt like one of the Pevensey kids who discovered their wardrobe wasn't a wardrobe at all, but a secret passageway to Narnia. My mind started racing with what I could do with this space, and it wasn't long before my plans to transform it into a clubhouse or fort came to fruition. But over the years, I outgrew that crawl space. I literally grew up, but I had also outgrown my affections for it, and so it became a space not fit to dwell in. But really, it never was fit to dwell in in the first place. It's a crawl space after all. No amount of me decorating it and no amount of me wanting it to become what it could be could turn it into the permanent home eight-year-old me desired it to be. 
But isn't this what we do even as adults? We want so many things around us to last as they are forever. And we want our affections for these things to last forever too, but they never do. We turn from one thing to the next to fill our souls, and we play host to a myriad of things that end up leaving us unsatisfied. Only Jesus has what it takes to be present with us and to fill our affections with him. Because when God dwells in us, we have immediate access to his presence and do not need to go to a shrine or holy place to commune with him. Because he is present, he can directly infuse us with his strength and pour out his love in our hearts. As one theologian puts it, we are this new covenant temple. Our inner being is the dwelling place of Christ. He wants to dwell in every area of our lives and help us clean out the garbage that soils our temples. He has the power to clean up even the most foulest and most rancid rooms that we find, so that we find greater comfort in allowing him to reign in us. We can take comfort that Christ is dwelling in our heart space right now. When we think we have left him, we have not. How can we leave someone who is always in us? We can encourage others to stop trying to make themselves into a good enough dwelling space and start praising the one who can make them into a perfect space for Jesus to dwell in. The gospel says Jesus has made us alive and we can take comfort that this is our faith and remind one another our faith is alive because Jesus is alive in us. But what good is it to have Christ dwell in us if we don't get to know him? Love does not matter if we don't know the love in us, but take comfort that we can know the love in us. That's our second point. Jesus wants to know us as well. In verse 17, Paul is transitioning from who the Ephesians are to what they are to do. And the first thing Paul wants them to do is to know the love of Christ. This is possible because they are being rooted and grounded in Jesus' love, and they have strength with all the saints. So we're learning how Jesus' power and his dwelling in us leads us to being rooted and established in his love. And Paul is praying that for God to pour out a deeper measure of his love into these Christians. Paul also wants them to have their roots sunk deep in the abundant love of God and that the foundations of their lives would be established in God's love. Both these metaphors and the content of his prayer anticipate Paul's concern that these Christians be sufficiently grounded so that when the storm of trials and testing come, they will not be, in chapter 4, verse 1, tossed around by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching. You see, the Ephesians had a keen sense of their need for divine power. They turned to Christ after being harmed by the power of evil spirits, and now they need to be comforted by the superior power of the God they now follow. The cultural context for us living in the West is different. There is not this intuitive awareness of the power of the devil and the working of evil spirits. In many ways, the influencers from the Enlightenment period have caused widespread doubt as to the existence of good and evil spiritual powers. This kind of doubt persists today. As one voice of doubt is North American astronomer Carl Sagan, who once said, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. What an empty view of the world. Yet we often live like we believe this lie in our everyday lives. 
We work a nine-to-five job trying to contribute something significant for the world, knowing that science has told us that one day our sun will burn out, the galaxy will be plunged into darkness, and everything we as individuals and the whole history of humanity have accomplished will be emptied of remembrance. This way of thinking and living is empty because it denies the eternity in the eternal things of God, and it denies the presence of the creator of the cosmos, the one who has intricately designed every square inch of creation. God's creation sings of his character. He is loving, and it is from his love that he created us and named us and charged us with cultivating the things in the cosmos. And I know each of us have felt this task in our work in our relationships, and just living and breathing as image bearers of God. It is both a profound and personal endeavor to explore this world. How much more is knowing the one who made it all and knowing the one who loves us all? In verse 18, Jesus' love is wider than wide, longer than long, higher than high and deeper than deep. And so it makes sense that in verse 19, knowing his love surpasses knowledge itself. Paul is essentially saying, I want you to know that which cannot be fully known. Yet Jesus has made it so we can know him still and know his love. Because in verse 18, we are the Lord's saints, his holy people, and we have power to comprehend. We're like the Ephesians. We can know the love of Christ that fills the cosmos. Knowing Jesus is the good news we can comfort those who are empty from following the knowledge of the world because the loneliness we try to satisfy stems from a spiritually empty view of the world. We try to separate the knowledge of creation from its creator and it leaves us empty. But Jesus' love fills. And what would otherwise be the empty longings of our heart and the emptiness of an unfulfilled world, God's glorious love and power fills the ends of our hearts and the ends of the world. In Paul's view and in ours, this love is so great that there are no powers of any kind that can separate us from it. Even if our sun burns out, our comfort in the love of Jesus will not. I asked the question earlier, will you choose to know the one who dwells in you? Will you know him as your Emmanuel? your Savior, your Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Holy and Anointed One? Will you know him as your Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, Servant King, Prince of Peace, Bread of Life, Living Water, the Way, the Truth, and the Life? Will you know him as the Light of the World, Beginning and the End, Lily of the Valley, and your truest friend? Mighty lion, humble lamb, risen Lord, and the great I am. My encouragement is that you know him so that you may be filled in him and praise him for his love at work in you. We now get to the final thing Paul prays would be true for the Ephesians. He wants them to praise God. It's like Paul is saying, you know all those things I just prayed for you? Well, guess what? God can do it and so much more. This is possible because of his power at work within us and his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Make no mistake, God can accomplish more than we ever ask him in prayer. But we can take it a step far beyond that by believing that God can do more than we can even imagine. 
but do we believe it? Do we really believe God can do abundantly more? Over the last few weeks, we have recalled powerful stories of God doing abundantly more. A small group of college students at Asbury University were used by the Lord to start a revival that changed thousands of lives. A man bent on murder converted to Christianity and eventually started a church planting movement in India, which is saving countless lives. And even the death to life story we are living as a church family in Northeast is God doing abundantly more. What is even more amazing still is that God uses his power for the good of his people, the church. Jesus has brought and will continue to bring glory and honor to the Father, but this is also the goal of the church, to bring glory to God for all that he is and all that he has done. The church is so valued by the Father that he offered the sacrifice and resurrection of his Son to create it. As our church maintains unity in Christ, we become more like the Father in holiness. We defeat the power of spiritual enemies. We fill the world with the good news, and we bring all the glory to God. What Paul is praying here, this all-encompassing love and power from God, should give us comfort. But what if it doesn't? What about the times we feel discomforted and we are not doing okay at any of the things just listed, and, and praise is the last thing we want to give God. What do we do then? Well, I have three words. Let Jesus work. And some years ago, I started working at this church as an intern, and on the first day of our intern orientation, Pastor Jeremy sat all of us interns down, and, and one of the things he said to us was, it's okay to not be okay. I'll never forget that. To quote my orientation manual, I still have it, a crazy idea has infiltrated God's church, the idea that Christians need to be perfect or that we need to at least maintain the appearance of perfection, and it is really hurting us. The Bible is pretty clear that we are not perfect and that we will not be until Jesus returns. We need grace. Our secrets only grow stronger when they are kept hidden. In the dark, they grow powerful. God calls us to walk in the light and that means we admit we are not okay. It is from that our relationship with God grows and our fellowship with one another deepens. River City Church, it's okay to not be okay. We are a church of imperfect people, imperfectly doing the work that Jesus will bring to its fullness. Jesus will work in our imperfection. It has always been his specialty to do so because the church is his plan A for reaching a lost world and there is no plan B. Since Jesus is in each of us, let him work in your gospel community because Jesus wants to know you and he wants you to be known by others. Praise to God is often couched within our life's journey and we are not meant to journey this life alone. Let's comfort one another in Christ together. And we can do so through organized pathways like joining a discipleship group, or organically meeting with a couple Christian friends in your life who you are growing closer to. And if you're interested in a discipleship group, but not part of one, or struggling to start one, that's okay too, but we would love to help you with that. Discipleship groups are spaces where we intercede for one another before God, bringing our requests, our hopes, and our dreams to him, just as Paul modeled for us with the Ephesians. 
It does not feel comfortable confessing our sin to others or helping others work through their struggles. But Jesus is in those messes and in the trenches with us to do a work that is better than all that we ask or imagine. As Tolkien wrote, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the king be known. And that makes it all the more comforting to praise God together on our journey of doxology. Our comfort from Christ and in Christ empowers us to comfort others. The Apostle Paul wants these Ephesians to enjoy the presence of Jesus and know the fullness of his love in them and praise him for this glorious work. He is interceding on their behalf through prayer. And like Paul, we want to be a church that comforts one another with these kinds of prayers because we want these things to become true for ourselves and our unbelieving neighbors. Imagine if each of us sometime this week sent one message to a friend, letting them know that we're praying for them, and then actually spend time praying for them. You know their needs, you know what troubles their heart, and you know Jesus is worthy of their praise. I encourage you to do that. What a comfort that would be to them and to you. The Bible gives us the words to inform how we can engage in prayer for ourselves and others in our lives, and that's because it points to Jesus as our greatest intercessor. It was Jesus who stepped in between us and our destiny of death and took on death in our place. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved, and it cost him nothing less than his life. But God's plan for our redemption could not be squelched at Jesus' grave. For after three days, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death and becoming our greatest advocate before the Father. When our bodies die and we come before the living God, we have Jesus at our side, the one who had been planning our welcome home party alongside the Father and the Spirit before time began and is planning so much more. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.